I'm Tom Henley, and this is Saga. As you know by now if you've been following the first season of Saga, this is a podcast about the unknown Swedish stories. Now, on today's episode, I will be stretching that a little bit, but you understand why when you hear how fascinating this story is. Today's episode is a history of the 20th century, one that weaves through both world wars. It is a story about someone forever trying to find home. Today's story comes from Yvonne Herdman. Yvonne is a famed Swedish historian, and her mother died when Yvonne was relatively young, so she never really knew too much about her. And then, one day, she was looking through her mother Charlotte's old stuff, and suddenly... I found, found her diary. Uh, I had kept it, uh, because my father had thrown it in a paper basket. Yeah, that was close. I realised there was so little material left from her, so I thought, but I am an historian. Now, in order to get close to her, I will try to to uh, to see how the context were. So I started digging. And I must say, I think it was a, um, how shall I put it in English, it was an advantage to be uh, an historian. Because, uh, you know, you could put all these sentimental feelings aside and do your job. I mean, it's like you are a doctor, you know, and you do surgery on your own child. And you can't think about, this is my child's belly, I'm going to cut it here, you know. No, you think, now I'm going to do the best job I can. So I started, and then I uh, I started with uh, my uh, my grandmother, and she came. Uh, her name was Emily Jeudar. She came from a little French-speaking village in Switzerland, Auvergne, and there she met uh, this German man, Fritz. <laughs> yes, uh, really, his name Fritz Schlitt. <laughs> Fritz Schlitt, he was a, a, he loved books just as you do. And then he met my uh, grandmother and they fall in love just when the first uh, Russian Revolution came. In 1906, Yvonne's mother Charlotte was born. The full name was Charlotte Ida Kete Marie Schlitt. After many ups and dops, they came to, to England. And then my grandfather must have seen a little advertisement in a paper about a book, uh, bookshop in Czernowitz, uh, in Bukovina. And he brought them there. They moved there in uh, 1914. 
when the First World War broke out. And my grandfather was, uh, became a soldier, and that was also something extraordinary. I hadn't read it before. The letters between her and her husband, between Emilia and Fritz. She tried to write in German, being a good patriot, but uh, then she changed to French. And they are wonderful. It was her time in life, in a way. The war dredged on, the trenches filled with water and rats and rotten feet and mustard gas, and then things went quiet. Yvonne found that there was a huge gap in her mother's timeline. No letters, no diary. And suddenly there were letters from my mama to her mother from Weimar. What the hell was she doing there? And she was only 16. She found photographs from her mother's teenage years in Weimar, but they might as well have been blank pieces of paper for all the information they gave her. With no writing on the backside, I had no idea who is this, who is that. I saw a man uh, putting his hand very possessively on the shoulder of my young mother. I thought, Maybe the first fiancé. Was she pregnant? Was she sent away to have an abortion? Why didn't she finish school? Things like that. Uh, so, I don't know. In the 20s, my mother went to, to, uh, to Jena and worked for a publisher. And there she met this like a fairy tale in a way, isn't it? Because there she met a very funny little very exciting man called Alexander Steenbock, Farmer, and he was a, a count. So they met, they fell in love, and then I found little pieces, you know, you know, things you write, like a contract. Alexander promises that he will not be angry. And uh, he had experienced the second Russian Revolution and seen his home, beautiful castle, burnt down, etc. So they fled to Germany, he and his parents. And now we are talking about 1928. They get married. They are moving to Berlin. Things are getting better in Germany, you know. Yeah, it looks brighter and better. You know, roaring 20s and, and that. And this is really Weimar Germany at its high. And then they are coming to Berlin, this young couple, my mama and Alexander Steinbock Fermon. She, she was now a countess, <laughs> poor as, as a, a mouse, but still, you know, they had the title. Yvonne's mother had her title of countess, and in turn, Yvonne found a title for the eventual award-winning book she would write about her mother, The Red Countess. The reason for the inclusion of the word red is because Charlotte became a strong supporter of the Communist Party, just as the Nazi Party grew in popularity. But Charlotte's husband, the Count, wouldn't let her join the Communist Party. It didn't seem very Countess-like to him. This political ideology of Charlotte's, however, would never leave her. Uh, it was a divorce 
1932. And now, you know, things had changed in Germany from 29 and onwards, bad times. The economic crisis hit Germany very hard indeed. Uh, it, and this was unruly times in Berlin, and my mother, she divorced Steenbock and she fell in love with the man of her life. And this is interesting, Heinrich Corella. I knew that name. She had told me that name. She must have told bits of this story to me when I was a teenager. But Heinrich Corella, that I know, because she had a, a, a ring which she gave me that he had given her. And I realized this was her, the love of her life. Heinrich Corella, all I knew, all I knew. And that he was a communist. Who was he? What was he? Yes, who was he? Who was he? And then I found the name Heinrich Corella in an article written by Reinhard Müller about the um, Comintern communists that were executed by Stalin in, 19, in the 30s. Yvonne was sure she had found out the destiny of Heinrich, the love of her mother's life, executed by Stalin's death squads. She found an email address for Reinhard Müller, the man who wrote the article where Heinrich's name was mentioned, and she wrote to him in her best German. My name is Yvonne Hartmann. I versuche ein Buch über meine Mutter zu schreiben. The next day I got, uh, I got an, a mail back uh, in Swedish, funny enough. I am living Jörg Buri Ik. You can ring me. You can call me on this number in Sweden. He was one of these Germans who had a summer house in, in Småland. So I rang him. And you know, he was the only person in the world who knew about Heinrich Kurek. Afterwards, I met him in Berlin and he told me how he did. He went to the archive and he got the files of the Germans that he was interested in. And he put the file here inside his trousers and went out to his hotel room and there he, he, he had a file on Heinrich Corella. And he said to me in the telephone, you know, I can send it to you because I had it on a CD-ROM. Can you imagine that? Reinhard sent her the files and Yvonne sat in her apartment in Stockholm shocked. There it was, all of it laid out in front of her. There was the trials against Heinrich Corella, and now I knew things that my mother never knew. They, were, they fled Germany when Hitler took uh, power. They lived in Switzerland for a couple of years, and then they came to Moscow. 1935, they were in Moscow. And 1937, my mother, in, in February, uh, was sent away from Moscow to do something for the Comintern, and what I don't know. 
So she went out of this hell to Copenhagen and she thought that Heinrich Corella would come after her. He never came. And I know, I know, I know, this was so fantastic. You can say many things about the communists, but uh, it's one thing that they... (laughs) Having the idea that they are in pact with the future, they document everything. So there were the protocols from the autumn of 1936, when Mama was still living with him in in Moscow, and whether she knew about these interrogations, I am not aware. I don't think so. I actually don't think so. Uh, But he was called uh, for the German uh, communist group in Moscow, and he was accused of the worst thing you could be accused of in 1936, 7, 8, etc. The file told her everything she had wanted to know. Things, as she said, her mother never knew. The gaps were filled in. He was expelled from the Communist Party, and then he was expelled from Comintern, where he had earned his living, and then he was arrested in the summer of thirty-eight, and then he was uh, executed in October 1938. Wow. They shot them from behind. And she never knew. And she writes to him. Yeah. She writes to him. Oh, if you just know how intense I need you just now. I have so many difficulties that, you know, she had problems with, uh, because she had failed with whatever she was supposed to do in Copenhagen. In the end, Charlotte found herself in a small French village. And she was a teacher there, and in the springtime 39, she was going to be expelled from France or put into some camp of some kind, you know. They treated refugees as the way they treat them now. There in the camp, Charlotte met a young man, ten years younger than her. He was Swedish, and his name was Einar. Yvonne's father. Einar, a very Scandinavian Nordic name. Einar Hirtman. <laughs> Uh, he was only 20, 21, devastated, his life in ruins. He felt so sorry for himself and tried to take his life almost. And he has broken his foot. His career was over, he couldn't go to the Berlin Olympia. I have photos from this. Yeah. There is my father, mm-hmm. there is my mother. Now it's 1939, World War II starts. Charlotte's mother is dead. Her brother is dead at the age of 24, and her sister is crippled in Leipzig, but Charlotte cannot get out to see her. And then, here was this down-on-his-luck gymnast from Sweden, and even though she was still in love with Heinrich, who had only recently disappeared, she saw something in Einar. Maybe it was salvation. He was cute. She thought of him as a cute one, and they were a bit alike. All her men was a bit alike. They were slender, they were light-haired, blue eyes, and intellectuals. Steenbock, Kurella, and my little father. And then she became pregnant on top of it. This was not the first time. She had done three, three abortions before. Back in that time, it was forbidden. She had done one in 1928 before she married Steenbock. She made one in, in the autumn of 1932. 
and she made the third one in Moscow when she was almost five months gone. And this is awful. This is awful. I know about this because she wrote a letter to her mama trying to be sachlich, rationell. So now she again was pregnant the fourth time. What could she do? Of course she could have managed some kind of abortion. I'm sure she knew how to do it and connections, etc. But uh, maybe she didn't have any money. Maybe she thought, my God, I'm 31. Anyway, her Norwegian friend there, Gabby, said, we, we will fix this, this in some way. Things are getting worse and worse. My father went home. They are writing to each other. And Gabby uh, and other people helped Mama to get a Nansen passport so she could go to Norway. So in July 1939, she went to Norway. There she was, and there she, is. she um, had her child, my brother, Sven, there Papa came, so they were married in Stavanger. And then Papa went back home. But then she went to Stockholm. She entered Sweden like nothing. She was through here at Mann. They didn't know it was a German communist spy. <laughs> and she found Sweden dreadful. And then on top of everything, she got me. Yeah. When you write, I looked at that in the diary. Ich habe heute Nacht ein hässliches kleines Mädchen geboren. Tonight I born an ugly little girl. And I thought, what? Come on. <laughs> and then I realized, after all, three abortions and three children. Lucky girl. And when I look at my mother's life, I realized how lucky she had been all the time. So to end this uh, fantastic story, yeah. in 1966, she and my father went to Moscow in the winter. There in Moscow, my sister-in-law told me that she wanted to go to the churchyards as if she was looking for something. The name of him, Heinrich Kurella, Egypt. By this time, she must have known what happened to the German communists. She must have known what had happened to her if she had stayed. Mama must have known, but she still went for him, went looking for him there. They went home, and in February she died. That's all for this week's episode. Saga is me, Tom Henley. The theme tune is done by the blue-eyed Anton Beckman. And join me again for more Saga.